one during Lent every year. Uh, we're calling it saying yes to transformation. Now, unfortunately, most people conceive of Lent as, uh, you know, it's a, it's a time of, well, actually, in my conversations with people about Lent, a lot of people don't really understand what Lent's about. Uh, because on, on, on the sort of the simplest level, wow, cavern-like experience here. <laughs> we, uh, we tend to think of Lent as it's just this period of time where there's a common fast and we're all giving up something together. And on, on the simplest level, that's true. But it's way much more than that. It's way, way more than that. Uh, you know, fasting has been a part of Lent from the early days of the church. And uh, often the church just looked at Lent as an opportunity to go on a Daniel fast, which was a, a form of fasting where you only ate vegetables and no sweets, no meat, no sweets. Uh, and if we conceive of Lent that way, like you're just giving up chocolate for 40 days, you've really missed what Lent is about. In fact, Lent is a great opportunity to talk about spiritual disciplines. Now, to some people, spiritual disciplines, what does that mean? You know, that, I, I'm not sure I like the word discipline. I love the word spiritual, but when you put spiritual and discipline together, it sounds like you're mixing up two things that shouldn't be brought together. But the truth is, is there any way you can get this ring out? Is there any magic thing you can do? Uh, we, we experience, if, if, you've, if, if you've been on the Christian life for any time at all, uh, you've, what, I want, what I want to take you through today is I want to show you and remind you of the frustration of trying, all right? Because most people think that's what the Christian life is about. It's about trying. It's about trying to follow Jesus. And when you figure out that that doesn't work very well, which we'll explore here in a second, you're going to, and I'm going to introduce to you today the whole idea of the power of spiritual disciplines. The secret of transformation is not in trying. And then, once we introduce the idea of spiritual disciplines, just briefly, because over the next six weeks, we're going to go into different spiritual disciplines, and we'll unpack this a little bit more. We want to look at the power of fellowship. So the, the frustration of trying, which I think all of us are going to uh, identify with, a lot of us have discovered the the amazing secret of real change and real transformation, which is in spiritual disciplines, but we've stumbled across it. We haven't quite got it and figured out, how does this work in my life? And, but, and so I want to take the last part of our teaching and just talk about fellowship, what that is, because that's one of the spiritual disciplines, believe it or not. So when I said the frustration of trying, people, when they hear the good news, are really drawn towards it. It's, it's, it's the most powerful message that anyone has ever heard. And it's transforming. But what tends to happen is, is once you receive Christ into your life, uh, it, it, you'll, you'll go through a period that's almost like a honeymoon. And then you begin to face uh, that the honeymoon's over. And how do I live this life now that I've gotten into? And unfortunately, the church introduces to you the secret of the Christian life and under a lot of people's conception is you need to try. <laughs> In fact, you need to try really hard. 
because the Jesus bar is raised really high. And so to match the standards that God has for you requires everything you have, all the effort you have. Now, that's not an entirely misguided notion, but it so misses what the gospel offers that it's something you really need to just throw out. Because here's what happens is, you hear the good news, and then you begin to try. But here's what happens. You try and you fail. You try and you fail. And, and with, with good intentions in your heart, you aim for these goals, and it's like you can just quite, can't quite get there. And what happens after a while in this try-fail cycle is, you'll eventually slip into one of two modes, I promise. And maybe you're here already. You're going to start faking it, or you're going to chuck it. Or you'll go through a cycle of faking it and chucking it. And uh, usually I, I can tell when, when people are going through that because I see them going in and out of church. They, they decide, I'm going to try again. I'm going to go back to church and I'm going to try hard. And they're around for a while and, and they put the smile on. And, they, and, and the, the, the thing about becoming a Christian is we, we bring our chameleon-like abilities from outside the church into the church and we learn to act. We learn to sort of put on a good face. We learn the language and we learn the, you know, all the, the cues and things. And we just fit in. But we're faking it. And God doesn't want you to fake it. And he doesn't want you to chuck it either. Just give up. I know too many people who, who bought into the gospel of trying. And, and it so burned them out, they thought the gospel is wrong. It's not. But the secret... If you're serious about really following Christ, and I don't think anybody that gets into the Christian life isn't serious, is the whole idea of the secret of transformation, the secret of real change and real growth is really simple. Now, we tend to think that the spiritual world and the, the, the rest of the world we live in operate really differently. That's wrong. They operate exactly the same because it's all God's world. Again, it's, it's, a, it's a misconception that the church has, has put forward so effectively is that there's your Christian spiritual life in this little bubble, and it's an hour or two on Sundays or some time here and there with other Christians, and then there's the rest of your life in that ugly, dirty world. And the truth is that's, a, that's completely got it getting it wrong because... It's all God's world. And our spiritual life extends, like we talked about last week, into every area of our lives. Work, relationships, our health, our finances, the arts, government. Every dimension of our lives is, is supposed to be a part of our spiritual life. They, they, they all mix and intermingle together. And they're, they're meant to be lived out together. Okay, And the secret of transformation is simple. When, if you've ever learned how to play an instrument, you've understood what training is. If you've ever decided you're going to run a race, like in people, you'll, you, like I saw a guy jogging in the snow yesterday. You know, he's, he's like, and his, his leg would, the snow would go up to his calf. And he's out there in his little tights and his little helmet on. <laughs> he's just running through the snow. 
It was, this was, this was uh, 5.30 on, on Thursday morning. He's just, a little, you know, his breath is going out. And, uh, and at a certain point, I could tell he was hitting some slick because then he got out in the road. And I just thought, you're crazy. You got a death wish. You know, you're, you're, you're training for a visit to the hospital because <laughs> the roads are snowy. Their plows are still going by. And he's out. He's running in the road around here. That's not you know, the wisest thing to do. But what he was, when you see someone running this time of year, you know some of the spring races, the 5K, 10K races, marathons. And you can't train for those things because here's what I've learned at my age. I, actually, I, I learned this young, but you can't just decide you're going to run a marathon. You have to train for it. And here's what training is. Training is an activity within our power that we engage in to enable us to do what we cannot do by direct effort. So when you learn scales when you're playing the piano and you practice those scales, over time you will gain the ability by direct effort to play songs which you couldn't do before by direct effort. Training allows us to enter into activities that we couldn't do without the training. And spiritual disciplines are just training. They're training. Now, most people look at them as uh, burdens, as you know, uh, things I have to do. And that's an unfortunate way of looking at them because what happens is the very things that you need to practice to become the person that, that God promises you can become in Christ are impossible without it. And so, uh, like First Timothy, or Paul's writing to Timothy, he, what he says to Timothy, he says, train yourself for the purpose of godliness. And he uses this word, which is a word for the training that people in the Olympic Games went into in that day and time. When you wanted to participate in an, an event like wrestling or a race or some other event in their games, you had to go through a period of training to be able to participate effectively in that event. And Paul took that word and brought it into the church's language to describe something which had been a part of the people of God from all history, which was we have to train. We have to train for life. We know that. If you've ever learned a foreign language as an adult, you know that you work through this regimen of training before you can become fluent in that language. There's no, there's no complex skill you've ever learned that didn't require training to master it, did it? Well, like I said, the real world and the spiritual world are the same. And so spiritual disciplines are an activity within our power that we engage in to enable us to do what we cannot do by direct effort. And what spiritual disciplines do is they position us to experience God's grace. They position us for God's grace to be infused in our lives so we can change. And throughout the history of people who are pursuing God in any meaningful way, they've practiced spiritual disciplines. In fact, most of the same disciplines, they were practiced in the Old Testament, and particularly they were practiced in the New Testament. You could see Jesus practicing spiritual disciplines. 
Because they are what position us to experience God's grace so we can change. And they are things that we actually can do. So you can have an aspiration right now for something meaningful in your life that you know is part of God's promise for you. But you're never going to get there by effort. You will never get there by effort. This room is full of people who have gotten someplace. Many of you have gotten to that place that you were shooting for accidentally because you haphazardly practiced these disciplines that we're called to participate in. And you get there, but you don't see how that goal was connected to the training you went through. And sometimes we postpone achieving goals we have because we practice these disciplines so haphazardly and so poorly. So, I want you to say this with me, because this is your takeaway. Transformation comes from training, not trying. So, transformation comes from training, not trying. Okay, that was, that was really, we need to practice that, all right? Transformation. Okay, so this is what spiritual disciplines are. They are training for righteousness. They're training for change. Give up the idea that you can get zapped by God and you will become a person with more self-control. That is a myth. The power of God comes on us for intimacy with Him and it comes on us for mission. But it doesn't change us. The power of God came on Jesus and then He went out and fasted for 40 days. And you see throughout His life, He practiced all the classical spiritual disciplines over and over and over. The Gospels describe them all. We just haven't necessarily haven't had eyes to see them. And so, I want to encourage you today, you may have walked in here and gone, I, I, you know, it's getting so hard to fake it. It's getting really difficult to, to keep trying and to hear other people tell stories about how God's changing their life and to feel like such a second-class follower of Jesus. You don't have to be a second-class follower of Jesus. They didn't get there because they're trying harder than you are. They just got there because they did things consistently that are within their power to do that enable them to do the things that they couldn't do on their own. And so the next six weeks, we're going to explore, and, and today, seven different spiritual disciplines. And, and these are disciplines that will change your life. They, they, actually, there's two kinds of disciplines, two sort of broad categories of disciplines. There's disciplines of engagement, and there's disciplines of abstinence. So disciplines of engagement would be things like studying the Bible, fellowship, worship, prayer, serving, giving, and on and on and on. There's a whole range of disciplines like that. Disciplines of abstinence would be things like solitude and silence, secrecy, sacrifice. There's a whole range of those. Fasting. See, fasting in, during Lent... People get some benefit out of fasting chocolate, fasting TV, fasting these things. All they're doing is they're getting the benefits of practicing a spiritual discipline. Fasting is not a way you, you buy God off by bargaining with Him. It's not a form of penance. 
Or, I've been bad, so I have to kind of let go of something I really like because I've, you know, gotten myself into stuff I shouldn't like, and I, but I like it, but I shouldn't do it. And so now I'm going to give something good up because that kind of balances the scales. That's not what grace is about at all. Jesus balanced the scales completely, once and for all, for us. When we fast, we're trying to let go of something that preoccupies us so we can focus on God in, in a more consistent way. And we're trying to let go of certain things that might have a real grip on us so that we can take the desire that's underneath that appetite and we can direct it towards God. And then we can enjoy Him and, and, and our relationship with Him can grow and deepen. And so when you let go of things, it, it's hard. Disciplines of abstinence are, are hard. They, they expose things in our lives. Well, I want to look at one today, the discipline of fellowship. Now, fellowship, we want to look at the power of fellowship. Fellowship is more than socializing and going to church. But that's the way many of us conceive of it, that going to church or socializing with other Christians in, in, in various contexts is what constitutes fellowship. And again, there is, there is something to be said for that, but if you don't understand what fellowship is, you don't get the benefit out of going to church and socializing with Christians in various contexts. Now, in, uh, in the second chapter of Acts, there's a, a story uh, where it describes young followers of Jesus, and I'm going to read the passage to you in Acts chapter 2, verse 41 and 42. It, after Peter had preached this great message on the day of Pentecost, he invited them to believe in Jesus. And it says that, uh, starting in verse 41, it says, those who accepted his message and they, they received Christ into their lives, it says they were baptized and about 3,000 people were added to their number that day. And it says immediately, the next verse, they devoted themselves to four things. The apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. Those are four spiritual disciplines. They, they began to focus on studying the message and understanding it in a disciplined way. They focused themselves on body life and fellowship. They focused themselves on worship and on prayer. Those are four really crucial spiritual disciplines. These young believers immediately immersed themselves. You see, right off the beginning, right off the bat. Now, our concept often is, well, those are duties. If you look at them as duties, you will never get where you want to go and where God wants you to go. You'll never get there. Because you, you won't consistently connect the grace of God with the practice of something. And I, I remember when my kids were practicing different musical instruments and they were learning piano and they really wanted to learn to play piano but they constantly were more in touch with the drudgery of practicing you know because I'd sit there beside them and they'd practice they would practice and it was just so boring and so frustrating but then every once in a while you know their teacher would give them a little song to play and they would realize the practice had enabled them to play a simple song and they could keep in their minds this vision, I'm getting somewhere. This is taking me somewhere I really want to go. And they became decent piano players and, and uh, other 
instruments because of that. But when they would lose their vision for why they were doing what they were doing, they had to be reminded and helped to go, this is taking you somewhere. So these disciplines, it says they devote themselves to fellowship. Now, again, we tend to think of fellowship as going to church. It's being around other Christians. But that's the most superficial understanding of it. That's the, the, it's not even basic. It is superficial. Because the word fellowship in, in the original language of the New Testament meant a shared life. A shared life. And it, and it, it was shared in two dimensions. So as soon as they heard the gospel, the, 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 the heart of the gospel is, we're cut flowers. All of us are cut flowers. We're, there's a certain amount of you know, bloom that we have, but we're slowly dying because we're cut from the source of life. And the heart of the gospel is that when you believe in Jesus, you are able to enter into the life of God that you were made for. That you begin to share God's life through your faith in Jesus. And that when you put your faith in Him, the life of God begins to become real to you. And you're not a cut flower anymore. We can live like we're cut flowers, but we're not. Then, because, so you can see that in verse 41. Those who accepted the message to have this shared life with God, they were baptized. And... About 3,000 were added to their number that day. So Peter's message was, had two dimensions to it. Like the cross. We always point to the cross. Peter's message said, you guys, when God came to you in Christ, you killed him. That shows that you're not the friends of God the way you thought you were. And that God was reaching out to you through his son. And you slapped his hand away. And you cut his hand off. But God in His mercy used your rejection to satisfy His justice and you can be forgiven because of the price that Jesus paid on the cross for you. And you can be reconciled to God and that the Spirit of God, who all the Jews knew was what they were all looking for. The Spirit of God, God living among us and living in us was the gift offered when we believed in Jesus. And so there's that vertical dimension that you're reconnected to God. And God's life by His Spirit comes in you. But then what God does when He reconciles you to Himself is it says, and, and they use, the, the church uses baptism to, to this, this little ritual to symbolically represent both these things. That when we're baptized... We are put into Christ. And everything that Jesus has, it's given to us as a gift. That's why when you get baptized, typically churches, they all do it different ways. But no, you're, someone else lowers you down into the water. You're, you're relinquishing your life. And, and, and it's a picture of you going into Christ. It's a picture of the old you dying. It's a picture of the old way of life being put behind you. All the guilt of it being washed away. And you come up out of the water and you're a new person but you're that water represents jesus but it also represents his people 
So there's that second dimension of the cross is this horizontal dimension. That when we're baptized into Christ, we're baptized into a people in whom Jesus lives. So let's, let's do something for a second. Try to help you get in touch with this. Put your hand on your heart. If you're a follower of Jesus, Christ lives inside you. He lives in you. Just close your eyes for a second. Jesus, just give us here just a, 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 a glimpse that you live in us. Bring to mind when we've experienced your presence. When we've known how near God is because of you. When we felt comfort in your guidance and your love. Your correction and your encouragement and your sustaining strength and all that comes from you. The joy that we've experienced at times. Now, that's one of the promises of the gospel. Now, what I want you to do is if you're sitting close to some, close to someone, take your right hand and just put it on the shoulder of the person to your right. If you're not next to someone, if you're at the end of the row, go left, okay? Some of you are going to have two hands on your shoulders. Now, I want you to just get in touch with them a second. Jesus lives in them. The same Jesus that lives in you lives in them. There's some couples that are doing, the, you know, just chill out, you know, get a hotel room. Don't get carried away here. Some couples are starting to get warmed up. Come on, stay with me. Those people next to you, they are also the dwelling of God. That as much as He's in you, He's in them. And He's among us. And that fellowship is where we have an opportunity to in, in a myriad of ways experience that. That we experience grace coming through those people to us. Because it's not just enough to experience God by ourselves. Okay, you can take your hands off their shoulder. So, think of all the verses in the Bible where it says, these are, these are very familiar passages where Jesus told his followers in, in Matthew 18, he said, wherever two or three of you are gathered, I'll be in your midst. They knew that was what made the Jewish people unique in the world was that God was present among them in the temple. That God had an address in the world to reveal Himself to the world that was through the Jewish people. These ordinary, ornery, difficult, unfaithful people. Sounds familiar. Us. God revealed Himself to the world that way. God's still revealing Himself in flesh and blood. The New Testament calls you the body of Christ. And that you're a member of it. And that as a member, you have a function and you have a role and you have something to offer. But it also says, when Paul unpacks that in one of his letters, he says, you're the body of Christ. And, and, and he animates that say you're a particular part like a hand. But the hand can't say to the foot, I don't need you. Neither can the foot say to the hand, I don't need you. Yet, we don't live that way, do we? We tend to think there's, there's most people I don't need. I need a few people when I need them. But pretty much the rest of the time, 
I don't really need them or I don't even want to acknowledge that I need them until I really need them. And I know everybody needs me because, you know, I've got so much of God's grace. We can tend to think that way or we can reject ourselves and think the opposite like nobody needs me. Not true. That's the essence of Paul unpacking that metaphor was that everybody needs you. More than you could imagine because Jesus lives in you and He's given you grace. He's given you something to offer that is indispensable for all of us. That stretches us. He also says that we're, t- we're living stones that are being built together to become the dwelling of God in the world. And I'll read this passage to you. I just found this this morning. It was a really interesting passage. I've read this passage a hundred times. I never thought of it this way. John, 1 John 4.12, it says, No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another... God lives in us and His love is made real in us. That's translated different ways, different ways in different translations. But what he's saying is when, when we love, when we practice fellowship, the discipline of fellowship, God becomes real to us. And then He's made real through us, through the body, through the church, through His people. So, this... You can see, and, and I won't go through the whole passage, but if you read after it says in Acts 2, it says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, the breaking of bread. They devoted themselves to the shared life together. And it describes this amazing community that emerged out of that. This community where they're, all their divisions melted together in this incredible unity and generosity and like-mindedness. And everything that doesn't characterize most of our gatherings today. Because when we devote ourselves to a shared life together, God becomes real to a greater and greater and greater and greater degree. And all the benefits of that just flow over into all of our lives. So the discipline of fellowship is about a shared life with God it's, that's, the, that's the basis of it, but it's this shared life in God that we experience only with one another. You can't experience the fullness of the shared life that Christ has for you unless you experience a shared life with other people. Now, that's a scary thought. If you've been around other people very long, the idea of opening up your life to God sounds cool. But opening up in the same way to other people? I don't know. That sounds pretty risky. That sounds, you know, like dangerous. That sounds like, you know, uh, a guarantee of disappointment. A guarantee of, you know, struggles. Uh, well, it's not without its trouble and war and problems. But because Jesus is in the midst of it, and He's in those people's lives, He will overcome that. And we will begin to experience this grace. But a shared life means we share our money. We share our time. We share our homes. We share our talents. We share our weaknesses and struggles and our failures. It means we share our lives. Because when we open our hearts up to God, we open everything up, hopefully. And the amazing benefits we get from that are supposed to 
prime the pump so we can begin to open our lives up to God in other people. To Christ in the people around us. Because, see, this is the thing we, that we miss. We all know when we're afraid to open some area of our life up to God that we miss grace that's available to us, right? But all of His grace doesn't just come vertically. Just as much comes this way. And so there's this same proportional understanding that we have to hold on to is that if we don't open our lives up to one another in meaningful ways, we miss grace that's supposed to come to us only through people. Because when God made Adam and, and He named everything and God said it's not good for man to be alone, He was there with God. He wasn't alone. But God has designed us to be like Him. God is a community. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three and yet one. And we are created for community. We're not created to be these, this, this uh, aggregate, you know, a, a pile of rocks. We are meant to be a temple built together in which God dwells. This, this living organism with all of its idiosyncrasies and, and, and facets and, and uniqueness. But it means we have to be willing to, to share ourselves with one another. So if we enter into the discipline of fellowship, of spiritual, the spiritual discipline of fellowship, we position ourselves to experience God's grace to change us in ways that we'll never experience alone. And I don't think there's any discipline that we need to practice more as Americans than this discipline. I really don't. We're going to move on to some other disciplines. And our staff, as we prayed and thought about what to teach through, we wrestle with what are sort of our shortcomings as a church and as Americans and, you know, knowing our fellowship as we know it. And we thought about what order we should teach these in and what of the, the you know, 15 to 20 spiritual disciplines that are classically practiced. We can't teach all of them in seven weeks. We want, you know, one a week to, to be able to get out there and to be practiced. But fellowship is, is almost unheard of. Meaningful fellowship is almost unheard of in the American church. It really is. Uh, uh, we, are, we are a superficial bunch. We are too. I am. We all are. And because of it, that's why there's so little grace that we experience. Now, I think there's only two reasons why we don't practice the spiritual discipline. One is ignorance. So, now, no one's ignorant. Alright? You don't have any excuse anymore about the whole discipline of fellowship. The other one is avoidance. Avoidance. We've mastered the spiritual discipline of avoidance. And avoidance comes from lots of reasons. When a person avoids things, they are avoiding something unpleasant. Well, I just hopefully painted a picture to you that although there are unpleasant moments in community life, in a shared life, if Jesus is at the heart of it, there is the potential of Benefits that way outcome, uh, way overwhelm any drawbacks, any difficulties. But when we avoid something, 
It's usually because something deep inside us. It's easy to project on to other people and put the problems for our behaviors on them. And people do this all the time. It's a very superficial way of, you know, rationalizing your behavior. But it, it's effective because we, we all tend to do it at different points in times. And it's easy to look at the church and go, yeah, man, how is that? How are these people, wherever you go, how are these people going to have any meaningful impact in my life? I see so little grace here. The truth is, we, don't, we haven't looked close enough. I'm surprised every week to hear stories from people in, in, in the fellowship, you know, being in the business as I am. I interact with you guys regularly and, and, and with our staff and other leaders. Just to hear the grace of God that you experience and the grace of God that you're showing is always deeply encouraging to me when I hear those stories. Always. I just hear the stories of things that you guys are doing, things that you're saying. You know, work that God's doing in your life and it just, it just reinforces to me Jesus is in people's hearts. And when I hear people say, this, I, you know, this or that excuse, I just go, you're, to be charitable, you know, you're projecting your stuff on other people. You're blaming people and using them as an excuse for you not opening your life up. I don't know why you're not opening your life up. Maybe you feel guilty. Maybe you feel ashamed. Maybe you feel afraid. Maybe you've been hurt and disappointed and let down. And it's hard to proverbially get back up on the horse. I get that. It's always hard to do that. But Jesus is the draw. Jesus is the center. Jesus, we as a fellowship, we want Jesus to be the center of everything we're about. And I know He is. And I know we, we, you know, that's, you reinforce that to me. I reinforce that to you. And if we keep pressing into Jesus together, together, all of who he is is going to be unfolded more and more and more. But we are avoiding, to a, a large degree, what that means. Because we're missing fellowship. We're missing sharing our lives together. So think about the areas of your life that you, that you avoid sharing with other people? What do you hold on to that you don't like to share with other people? It would be a worthwhile exercise for you to ponder that. The time, the money, your home, your energy, your talents. Uh, and and on, on the flip side of that coin, your weaknesses, your failures, your sins. Your struggles, the part of you that's just as real as the strengths and talents and good side of you, that other side of you is just as valuable to us. There's all kinds of good reasons for us to share all that stuff with one another. See, that's what a shared life is about. You're not a person who lives in pristine moral perfection. None of us do. And the more we honestly come to terms with that and we begin to share that part of our lives with people appropriately, the more the grace of God begins to come in. And the grace of God flows through other people to us. We get, when we open up our weaknesses, we let other people have an opportunity to experience the grace of God working through them and coming to us. 
And sometimes people aren't experiencing grace, God's grace because He wants it to come through them to you. He wants them to experience grace in that way, just like at some point He wants you to experience that. But if we're not asking for help, if we're not showing our weaknesses, if we're not talking about our failures, we're, both of us are, are, are missing something. Two parties are missing something. And grace is there. What we need is there. So, my, my, my take home to you is this. Transformation comes from training, not trying. And the spiritual discipline of fellowship of, sh- of, of a shared life with God and a shared life with others is crucial to you growing and changing. And that Jesus and other people is what you need. And even though you genuinely want to follow Jesus, He is going to hold some of His grace back from your life if you only seek it between you and Him. Because that's not His design. God is a community and He's made us to be a community and the world is looking for a community. That's part of what they need to see. They're not going to believe the gospel as Jesus reminded the, the disciples. He told them, He said, they're going to know that God sent me by your love for one another. That is the greatest apologetic, the greatest proof that Jesus is from God is when people love like He loved, sacrificially, wholeheartedly, with vulnerability. I mean, Jesus let it all hang out. God let it all hang out. And He, he broke the ice of our fear because he says, listen, my love will undergird you. When you take risks, I will be there to meet you. And my love being poured out in your hearts will help you overcome fears that have kept your families in isolation for generations. And we can look at our family history and see the mess of generations behind us and what sin has done and and dysfunction has done and largely it's because people were disconnected and so i want to ask you to just close and and pray with me and uh, on the back of your outlines there's six little devotional exercises for you to practice fellowship this week Okay, you can see them there. The first one is pray for one another, then listen to one another, encourage one another, correct one another. That's a challenging one. Bear one another's burdens and forgive one another. These are six of 20-something one another sayings that are, that are sort of the, the, the core of what it is to live a shared life. Because there's other one another sayings in the, in the Bible like... Uh, Give to one another. Sacrifice for one another. Accept one another. Welcome one another. Bear with one another. Be patient with one another. What these, this little devotional is, each day, just read that verse and say, God, how can I practice this today? For prayer, we want you to start off with prayer. Just start praying for the people that are around you. People that you know have need. Just pray for them every day. Now, some of you pray more for other people than you do for yourself. Well, that's, that's not always the best thing. You need to pray for yourself too. But some of us, we only pray for ourselves. 
And we learn about the community needs of other people by praying for them and even asking. So you may think, I don't know how to pray for people. Ask people, is there anything I can pray for you about? Now, some people, that may be a little bit, you know, of getting into territory with them that, that you've never gotten into. So maybe you just hear, overhear something and you begin to pray for somebody. They don't need to know you're praying for them. It doesn't matter. You're talking to God for them. But pray. And then listen to people. Then encourage people. Anyway, these are one another's sayings. They're, they're part of, of fellowship. And when, what I want to ask you to do is, if, if you're here and you recognize that you avoid the shared life, and, and maybe obviously you're here, you're not avoiding it completely, but let's just say you, re, you recognize as a result of what I've said that this shared life is meant to be deeper than maybe you've been comfortable with. Then I want to ask you to say to God today, God, help me to begin to move forward in this journey of living out a shared life with other people. Because I know you're, that's your goal and your destiny for my life. Secondly, some of you have offenses and disappointments and wounds that... that when you think about the shared life, they're part of why you avoid it, if you pondered it. If you reflected on why you avoid the shared life at the depths we're talking about, it's because you've been burned. And maybe you need to forgive people. And I want to ask you today, for, the, for those two things, the third thing is maybe you go, I'm kind of such a loner, or I'm, I feel so sort of socially awkward, or I don't feel like I you know, have a lot of friends or connections. But I want to ask you to, to let us pray for you that God would begin to give you connections with people in the fellowship here. And that He would even prompt you to initiate that with people. So first, that God would help you to stop avoiding the shared life. Second, that He'd help you identify any bad experiences with this that are part of why you avoid it. And then third, that God would help you begin to make connections. He'd begin to help you to, to see what you have to offer to other people. And that He would give you the oomph to begin to move out into that space that you kind of avoid. So why don't you stand with me? Hey, uh, where's Adam? There you go. We always close this way. We reconnect with the Lord as we worship. We respond with our hearts. And a heart response usually requires a, some kind of response with our, our body. This is why spiritual disciplines are so important is we serve God in our body. And spiritual disciplines always engage our body. You'll see every spiritual discipline has this cord that goes through it. Is that it has physical activity and action as part of it. It's not just something that sort of happens in the abstract. It's like real nitty-gritty in your life. So, as we're closing with this song, I just want to encourage you, if you've been avoiding and you want to stop avoiding fellowship, why don't you just come forward and just, as we close the service this way, you just stand before the Lord and say, Lord, help me just, I acknowledge I'm doing this to some degree. It may be awkward for you to do that. It may be singling you out like you're the only person that does that. If, if this whole 
front isn't totally full and there's nobody in the chairs, we're all just lying. All right, you're not, you're not the only one. Secondly, if you have offenses and things to get over, come up here and say, God, I'm stuck because that hurt what I went through, the disappointment. And it's, I, I, it's hard to push through that. Ask Him for help to do that. And then third, ask God for grace to begin to use your gifts and, and to move out into that space and to make connections with other people. We're just going to dismiss that way, okay? No, nothing else after this. So let's pray together. Uh, Father, thank you for Jesus that through whom we have a shared life with you. And Father, thank you for the people, your, your body that's, that we're surrounded by right now. Thank you for the grace that comes through them. You in them. Christ in each of them. The hope of glory. And Father, I pray as uh, these ideas just sit in people's hearts right now and over this next week that you would make Jesus real to them. That grace would become real to them in new ways. 